to episode 7 of the Fringe in Review and we are back at the Space UK which is uh, probably coming towards the end of its first week and it runs for uh, January and part of February 2021 uh, and it, it is the Space UK which is an Edinburgh uh, venue, in fact it runs a range of spaces at the Edinburgh Fringe which of course like the rest of us into lockdown was lockdown itself offered uh, an online offering of shows during August 2020 and um, who knows what's going to happen with the Edinburgh Fringe 2021 we are waiting with bated breath and there is of course hope that we're going to all end up back in the physical world but also a realism that with vaccination running perhaps even towards the end of the year that um, any fringe festival is going to struggle particularly if it's based on a lot of income from the bars that it operates from its catering uh, from spaces that are quite small and enclosed that if anything even if it's back it won't be the huge monster of uh, art and performance that is both brilliant and scary that it usually is and we're already hearing messages that the Edinburgh Fringe leadership are looking at how things can be different as we head into a world that emerges from lockdown that then has to face its responsibilities for climate change how will an international festival simply be a neutral platform for anyone and everyone it could be that things have to change and uh, pivoting is the word that a lot of people used how do we pivot well the edinburgh fringe tried to pivot very quickly by going online as did the space uk and uh, we've already been chatting to some really exciting theatre makers and you can go to the Space UK Season 2 website and find out, well I think it's over 50 shows that are on offer, perhaps even more. And so in this packed show we're going to be chatting to Keith Alessi whose uh, intriguingly titled show Tomatoes Tried to Kill Me But Banjo Saved My Life has also gone online in a recorded version of a show that's been touring uh, a lot and it's an inspiring uh, mix of story and music. Writers Lucy, Joe Finnegan and Logan Jones have got their own plays at the Space UK and it's going to be really exciting to chat to them and um, a little um, admission that I've been so immersed in not just the Space UK but lots of other online theatres such as the Living uh, Record Festival but I think I mentioned that they were part of Living Record and just to correct that they're part of the Space UK but what's great about their interview is that they're on the same interview and they contrast and compare their work and the different ways that they write uh, and if you're interested in how people write for theatre then it's going to be great to listen to them. Now, Naomi Paul, Dion Sandbrook and Sarah Walden are uh, immersed in a community project that's all about um, uh, an artist going into a community, in this case a particular um, village, um, and its relationship to nature around it. Um, and that's involved research, that's involved the writing of poetry, and this spoken word artist Naomi talks about her process, and all three of them talk about the value um, and the process of how a community is joined up with an artist to produce something that in a lot of ways becomes an effective act of protest. So plenty to listen to in this Fringe in Review podcast and then I would suggest you get your finger pressing on the uh, keys and heading over to the Space UK Season 2. So we start our interview with Keith Alessi um, and we're going to go into territory that's challenging but also ultimately uplifting. Well, at last, Keith Alessi, hopefully he's joining us. Um, we've been struggling with um, we've been struggling with anchor, but Keith, you're here. 
Yes, <laughs> finally. We're, we're trying Zoom instead, so hopefully this will work. Um, so, yep. so looking forward to chatting to you. Now, Keith, um, Tomatoes Tried to Kill Me, but Banjo Saved My Life. This feels like a two-part interview, and I think we might discover we've got a few things in common. So can we start with Tomatoes Tried to Kill Me? Yes. Um, they're both metaphors, and they're both literal. Uh, the tomatoes literally tried to kill me. They gave me acid reflux. And I ended up with stage three esophageal cancer and was given a very short period of time to live. Uh, the tomatoes also are metaphorical. I grew up in a very abusive Italian household. So that's, that's how they both came into the title. Uh, the, banjo, uh, the banjos are quite literal. I had an obsession with them. And I uh, finally, after getting my cancer diagnosis, picked them up, learned how to play them, and it led me to healing, um, both spiritually and physically. And they're metaphorical, too, because they represented not the life I was born into, but the life I chose for myself. Now, I say tomatoes and you say tomatoes, but let's not call the whole thing off. Uh, the bit in common is that when I was 30 and I went through testicular cancer, my doctor, who was both a, you know, a qualified normal doctor in terms of normal medicine, was also an alternative kind of complementary therapy doctor. And he told me not to eat tomatoes, which is good because I never could really tolerate them anyway. So that's well, I, had them, having I had them in virtually every meal growing up and uh, I still enjoy them. So, uh, but I'm learning that they're, uh, I'm learning that they, both they and life are a bit more digestible these days. <laughs> For me, when you cut a tomato, or let me try and speak American, tomato in half, for me, it looks like the inside of someone's brains. It can. Sometimes it looks like a smiley face. It depends on, it depends on oh, the tomato you get. Yeah. So there's a few questions here. The first is the big one. How do you create a show out of all of that? Well, you know, I had, I had built this world-class banjo collection. Even, I was a collector, but I couldn't play them. And I, you know, I'd pick them up and I'd take, you know, I'd get videos and I'd read books and I'd try to learn and I never made any progress. Well, when I got my cancer diagnosis, I said, well, I need to focus on something positive here. I'm going to learn how to play these darn things, but it's not good enough to just learn to play them. I needed accountability. So the fringe circuit provided me accountability. I said, I need to go on stage and play this thing. I need a deadline. I need something to do, you know, I have to have this kind of accountability in order to, to force myself to learn. And so I entered fringe festival lotteries until I got in them. And then that forced me to write the story and to learn to play. <laughs> so I came at it a much different way than the average fringe performer. But, but so you, but you've mixed, you know, what could have just been a live gig with music, but you've mixed that with a story. Or more than one story. Yeah, it, it was never intended to be a concert, uh, and no one would ever show up and watch me play. I mean, on a good day, I'm a, a fairly decent intermediate player. This was never about becoming Earl Scruggs. Uh, but what's been real interesting about my journey to the stage is I wrote the story, I put it up. Toronto Fringe was the first fringe I entered, and I totally got panned. Uh, they said it was too TED talky, and 
as I became more vulnerable on the stage and just opened up more and became more conversational, the thing got legs under it. And we really caught on fire in 19 and made a heck of a run across Canada, sold out our last 33 fringe shows, won a bunch of awards, and then got selected as one of 18 acts worldwide to go to New York for the off-Broadway uh, fringe, best of the fringe for 2019. And we sold that run out as well. So it, it's been kind of an amazing journey. The exit of journey, the show's more interesting than the show. Well, you know, laying aside um, COVID for a moment, it's a strange century to live in when adjectives finally went to the dictionary like Ted talky. Yeah, that's that's true. But it's interesting about COVID is a lot of the things I talk about in my show are more relevant because of COVID. You know, the isolation that people have been feeling with COVID, when you get cancer, you have that same sort of isolation. You know, when I went through my chemotherapy, um, I had to stay away from people because my my immune system was compromised. And the reprioritization that I went through in cancer is a lot like the reprioritization and reflection people have had as they've as they've uh, dealt with the issues of COVID. So it's kind of interesting the way it all played out. I mean, I certainly would have preferred to have been touring in 2020. We had about 120 shows, including we were coming for the whole month of August there. And so I'm keeping fingers crossed that that might happen in 21. Well, when I, I, it sounds like I didn't have the big C nearly as bad as you did. And I, I kind of emerged from it fairly quickly. But when I was plugged into the chemotherapy, having it injected into me, I actually wrote my funniest comedy play. Was there any kind of creative stuff going on for you when you were actually in the thick of all of that? Actually not, because um, I was doing 30 minutes of radiation every day for a month. I was doing chemo for three hours every Monday. I was exhausted. I mean, I was falling asleep. I'm a pretty high energy guy. I, I was just out of it. So it wasn't till, and then I spent, I had a very tricky surgery. I was given a 50% chance of surviving a year and a 15% chance of surviving five. And I'm happy to report it's been five years. Hey. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I was pretty beat up and I had a very complicated surgery that they didn't even do 10 years ago. If not for this particular surgery, I wouldn't be alive. They Think of a gastric bypass backwards. They take out your esophagus. My, my stomach is in my chest, very high in my chest now. And I have this little itty bitty chest stomach. <laughs> so I was three weeks in an intensive care unit. and Boy, I wasn't having any creative thoughts during any of that. Yeah. I was just- well, I, Yeah. Well, unfortunate choice of words from me, but your your big C has trumped my little C uh, big time. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but so when you come through that and you realize there's something called the rest of your life ahead of you, there's the banjos, there's the collection. So just give us a little bit about how that turned in you, you'd being able to play it and be able to even, you know, go in front of the public and play it. Well, I, I started taking classes. And in fact, I had actually started taking classes just about two months before my cancer diagnosis. You know, I was 61 at the time. I was gonna retire. And I said, well, this is the time to take this up. So in the two months leading up to my diagnosis, which of course I came out of the blue, um, I'd actually started to take classes. So I had an instructor and that instructor came to my house. And after I got out of the hospital, 
people. I kept going to classes, you know, once I had recovered enough to do so. And he kept coming to my house. And then I moved to Virginia, which is where I'm talking to you from right now. And the part of Virginia I'm in is, you know, a hotbed of old time music. And this is really where the banjo took its roots in the States. And I started immersing myself in the local music scene here. And as I describe in the show, I became a member of the of the circle of a jam at the Floyd Country Store. And it was there that I really progressed. I met people, I got comfortable. They invited me in. I mean, my show's about the healing power of the arts. It, you know, music's a democracy. Uh, it's not about politics. You check that at the door when you go to a jam. And I found healing in the jam and in the circle and in the music. And it was it was just a progression. The beauty of a jam, you can just sit in the back. You don't need to, you know, you don't have to play loud. You figure it out. You figure out chord progressions, the timing and things like that. And the people were so accepting and welcoming. And, and that really is the story of how music saved my life. So a deliberately kind of ignorant question, but a good one for people listening in. What can you do on a banjo that you can't do on a guitar, Keith? Well, banjo you know, is more a percussive instrument. It's even though it's five strings, the fifth string's a drone string. And so the kind of music you play with it, uh, you don't play chords, you tend to play notes. Um, and you do rolls where on a guitar, you're, you know, you're strumming and, and you're playing chords. So it's a complementary instrument, but I always was drawn to it because it's got such a unique sound, you know, the, the sound cuts through it's it's got that percussive bright sound if you have a bluegrass banjo i've been playing mostly old time banjos recently which has got that more mountainy thumpy sound to it it's just got a very honest sound to it and it's different you know a lot of people play guitar you don't find as many banjo players now we're in lockdown, so I get the chance of already before this interview seeing a bit of you on video and knowing and telling the audience you have to see this guy because he knows how to play and he knows how to perform. So we can tick all those great boxes. But so beyond that, is the, this touring and is this playing a kind of ongoing therapeutic thing for you? Is it part of you continuing to get better or have you left that behind? Oh, no, absolutely. It's therapeutic. And in a way, I never understood. You know, I have never been on the stage. I mean, high school, but that doesn't count. And what I never anticipated when I started down this path was the effect it was going to have on my audiences. Yeah. Uh, there's not a show that somebody isn't coming out of that audience with a story, with a tear in their eye. You know, pre-COVID, one of my favorite experiences in Winnipeg, I had 110 people in the audience. I counted 75 hugs at the end of the show. Yes. Here's a story. Um, I did this in front of family and friends in Chicago before I went to Toronto for my first real show. And there were two young men in the first row and they were crying through this whole show. And at the end of the show, they came up to me and I said, hey, what's going on? And they said, well, we didn't know why we were coming here tonight. Our friend invited us and, um, we hadn't heard a banjo in two years. Our father used to play the banjo and he died of brain cancer two years ago. And Keith, your energy is his energy. So they're sobbing. I'm sobbing. We're all having a big hug. And I walked out of there and I thought, holy crap, there's more to this than just going up there and playing a song and taking a, you know, taking a bow. 
And the more vulnerable I've become on the stage, the more emotionally interactions I'm having with people. I donate 100% of my gate to charity. And I've been supporting fringe festivals and cancer charities everywhere I go. And just the stories and the motivation I get out of the people who come to see the show are unbelievable. I have people come back in a eight show run three, four times that bring friends, that bring family members. And it's not just cancer patients. It's people they feel need to get, you know, out of a jam. They need to focus on something positive because I keep focusing on what's ahead, not what's behind. You can overcome just about anything if you maintain a positive attitude. So yeah, this is hugely therapeutic for me. And we've done a number of these. I've done a number of live online shows and, you know, they're good, but they're not the same. You know, it's not the same kind of a reaction you get in an auditorium as you get watching something on the screen. But that's so said, I, yeah, I'm going to come to that as my last question. But before I do, um, just to be clear, too, I mean, I've seen a lot of Fringe over the last decades, um, and there are occasionally some real shattering pieces of theatre that explore cancer. And it was on the TV yet again this morning, the famous statistic that one in two people is going to get cancer at some point in their life. But actually, most shows I've been seen that have got story or music or cabaret or theater about cancer they are not depressing and they're not anything to be scared of are they no and i went out of my way to make certain in my show anytime i touch on what's a particularly sensitive area i come right out of it with a joke or humor i, I don't leave the audience down now, this isn't this is supposed to be uplifting it's not a downer in any way shape, shape or form but I personally, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say cancer is the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I wouldn't have wished it on myself or anyone else. But it doesn't have to be a death sentence. I was fortunate. I had a good metabolism. I reacted well to the therapies I was given. But, you know, you got to go on living. You know, you get the hand you're dealt and you can choose to either just give up or you can choose to try to live your life the best you can. And that's really a message I'm trying to leave people with. So final question, which I've been asking everybody I've been interviewing uh, around the Space UK online, now we're at season two, is um, how would you like me or what advice would you give me for how I should watch your show, Keith? Well, it, it's best just watched. It, you know, it is what it is. I, um, it's funny, most people watch it with somebody else. <laughs> you know, I find that most views are two people because I hear, hey, I watch this with my kid or watch that. I don't think that um, what I wouldn't want people to do is bring a bias of, oh, I don't want to see a show about cancer. It's, that's, that's really not what the show is about. Uh, so I think you just approach it with an open mind and, and just digest it as it comes. And it's a, a performance I did back in January in Calgary of 2020. And actually that is the second from last live show I did. That was on a Saturday. We did a Sunday show. We wrapped up and then the world came to a halt. And so can I can I curl up on a sofa, you know, with a with a yeah. beer? Yeah. You know, it's you know, they're gonna laugh and they're gonna, hopefully they're gonna enjoy it, take something away from it. Some people will be touched um in one way or another. And um I just hope they'll accept it in the spirit in which I offered it, which is a positive spin. Keith, thank you so much for talking to Fringe Review. Well, thank you so much for having me.
now two writers, uh, young writers who have written very different plays, um, had to pivot, there's that word again, to head online, head during lockdown into continuing to be able to show their work. Plays that were um, headed for the physical stage and may well do again are here at the Space UK and they talk about the details of their show so I'll leave it to them but what I'm fascinated by here is how the writing process changed, um, how they write and also how the change really might lead to uh, at least yeah, evolved versions of their writing as we emerge from lockdown. I think both of them uh, brought their work uh, in the spirit of continuity to the online world but also have hopes and dreams to continue what they started, which is to bring it to physical world audiences too. So two different writers, two writers from the same theatre company and who contrast, but also have the common ground of needing to uh, emerge successfully from lockdown, but you have the treat of being able to see their work right now at the Space UK season two. Now, who am I joined by? Uh, Logan. Logan, hi. hi uh, Logan Jones, who's going to be talking about some of um, his exciting work at Living Record Festival. And we're waiting on one. Uh, do you want to say who she is? Uh, yeah, it's uh, Lucy Finnegan. Um, and we've both written plays for online at The Space UK, uh, which is an online theatre festival uh, being run by The Space. Um, and that's one of the say I'm gutted because we had such a brilliant interview before and it got lost in the internet ether, which very, very rarely happens. But it gives us a chance to ask some questions going forward that maybe we didn't ask before. It is so exciting to be talking to writers who during lockdown have risen to the occasion. And in this case, you guys have got two very contrasting plays. But while we wait for Lucy to join us, Logan, tell us about yours. Yeah, so I've written uh, The Same Rain That Falls On Me, which is a, a monologue. Um, about uh, a student called Alice who gets a call um, to tell her that her father, who is very ill, is um, kind of gravely ill. And so she travels back home to say goodbye to him and also to sort of prepare with the rest of her family uh, how to cope with uh, the, the change um, that's coming. Um, but it's very, and uh, so it's, it's quite sad, but it's also, I think, uh, it's got quite a lot of humour in it and uh, quite a lot of optimism, I think, too. If I followed you around, which I'm not allowed to do during lockdown, what would that writing process look like? Um, I think it would it would probably look a bit like me opening my laptop, kind of staring at it a bit, maybe sort of changing it. I do actually what I um, what I do is I print out drafts, uh, so I have physical copies, and then read those. Um, I read them once without making any notes, so sort of just like take the hit and see what works and what doesn't, and then. Um, I read it again and uh, make notes this time um, and then sort of make where I might cut things or change the wording of things. And then I go back to my laptop and uh, incorporate the changes into the draft on Word. Uh, so I suppose that's what... So are you a bit of a restless writer? Could you say that again? Sorry. Are you a bit of a restless writer? Um, yes, I think so. It uh, it takes quite a lot for me to motivate myself. Um to do writing um once i kind of get into the swing of it um it's i'm, I'm absolutely fine but it's sort of like getting uh, like sort of getting the motivation to actually sit down and focus um to kind of focus on an idea 
it does take a bit of time. So yes, I think I think restless is a good word to describe that. So what's been the life of the script when you kind of had to make that decision that this is going to appear online? It's going to appear during lockdown. It's going to be on a digital platform. Um, yeah, it's a good question. So uh, it's we started off, um, we did it first in November 2019 as part of the Takeover Festival at York Theatre Royal. So obviously a few months before um, coronavirus was, was something that was a ubiquitous thing. Um, so we did get it. We did do it once in front of an audience and then... Um, it sort of got put on the back burner a little bit. We talked about taking it to um, Edinburgh, which is how we sort of, uh, which is how we got in um, in contact with the space um, and sort of a, with a, a conversation with them. And then they offered us the chance to put it online. Um, and it didn't take as much. It didn't take much convincing to do that um, because it being a monologue, um, we thought that it would adapt quite easily to um to being digital so uh we have two actors um ella and maria um and they've uh, each recorded their own versions and um they uh, you know they can just sort of turn the camera on and and do as many takes as they like and then we can choose the one that everybody's kind of happiest with um it there wasn't a huge amount necessarily there wasn't a huge amount of of change in the process i suppose of actually rehearsing and performing it um but i suppose what what is a big difference is is the format as you say the digital format um which makes for a completely different relationship with a completely different viewing experience but also a completely different relationship uh with the audience who are watching now, great opportunity for some contrast here. We've just been joined by Lucy Joe Finnegan. And Lucy, uh, Logan's been telling us about his writing process and his play. Now, you guys are joined up through the same company, but your whole play is very different. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah our shows are very, very different. Um, yeah, mine kind of like wacky comedy, whereas Logan's very like heartfelt kind of, which... It's good to have a variety from a different. I think. Um, we're having a bit of sound trouble. Lucy, are you outdoors somewhere? Uh, no, uh, I'm sorry. I'm on my laptop. The phone wouldn't. Um, my phone wouldn't uh, pick up the the anchor app at all. So um, I, that's okay. It, my laptop. It, sorry. It, it's okay now. No, that's fine. So, so how did your play get born? Uh, well, mine um, was originally, uh, I originally wrote it as a short story, actually, like all the way back in 2018. And I'd sent it into a competition and it it didn't place or anything, but I, I liked the story so much. I was like, I don't really want to drop this. I want to just try and do something else with this. So I adapted it into a play. And um, uh, the University of York does this great thing um, in the Drama Society, which is called Open Drama Nights. Um, in which like students can submit student-written theatre and it can be seen by the whole society. So I submitted the play as that and that's kind of how it was born. And yeah, and then this, well, last year I tried to get it on at the Edinburgh Fringe, which obviously didn't work, but um, now we're at the space, so it all worked out. Yeah, and I guess we've all been thwarted by lockdown. We've been, you know, transferred from the physical world into this digital platform. Has the script had to change much 
now you know it's on a digital format. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that was um, that was probably the biggest thing that we changed because um, originally we would have um, all of the characters kind of popping into the same location, um, which was the central location of the main character's house. Um, but obviously we knew that that wasn't going to be something that we could happen because we had everyone kind of spread out. We had people spread out over three countries. So naturally we couldn't do that. So instead we changed the script. So the majority of the characters would be contacting over kind of FaceTime. Um, so that way it kind of made sense that everyone was speaking from a distance. And that just required like changing a few jokes up. It didn't change much of the course of the script, but the kind of way that characters interacted was definitely flipped. Now, you don't sound like you're outside now, which is good for my next question, because um, I've been asking this same question to a lot of um, theatre makers during lockdown. How how would you like me to watch this? Uh, well, I'd say probably, um, I don't know, in a review we got, um, it got called that it was very a very cosy show. So um, I'd recommend kind of like sitting on the sofa kind of with a cup of tea, and maybe a scone or something and just kind of having fun with the show. It's definitely a show that doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, so I think just kind of being there for the ride is the best way to kind of view it. And Logan, do you think that this experience of lockdown has changed you in any way as a writer going forward? Um, I think in the sense... Uh... Um, what concerns me about lockdown um, and and sort of when whenever it happens to be, but when sort of lockdown is eased again and things start to return to normal, I am worried about the implications that has for sort of for social connection, um, which I think was already in a slightly fragile state before lockdown, and so I and kind of ideas of social social isolation, um, I. Uh, ideas that concern me quite a lot as a writer it's it kind of it comes into my writing quite a lot so and I, I suppose what lockdown has done is kind of emphasized those concerns and those fears so I think it might be something that preoccup that preoccupies me a lot more and that I might try to kind of explore more through writing um yeah I think so yeah. so it's brought some new kind of writing themes for you and Lucy in terms of do head back to Edinburgh or other festivals and it's back in the physical world if you took this play back to a physical theatre venue do you think it'd be the same script as before lockdown as the has the lockdown experience changed this script even in a physical place yes I would I would definitely say that um because I think we'd probably change it back to where it wouldn't um be over FaceTime in terms of framing anymore but I know one thing that um, was kind of a bit scary in, in a way is how much I realised kind of during the initial planning for Edinburgh when um, the coronavirus was just kind of like starting to be a real concern was how like often it kind of seems that this, the script was a bit too topical where um, we had like scenes of people talking about thinking that kind of a mass illness was going around because the play opens with a hundred people just dropping down dead. And we have all the radio saying like, Oh, you need to stay inside for your own safety. And I remember looking at that and being wow. like, Oh God, this is, 
really on point for what's going on right now, despite the fact that I've written it like all the way back in 2018, 2019. So I think if we were to go back to Edinburgh uh, next year, it would probably be uh, probably a bit too topical for people to handle. And I think since the show is meant to be just kind of a bit more lighthearted, that probably, that was an aspect that we did change for the space. I would probably keep that changed aspect because we changed um, the concept of mass illness to kind of a gas leak. So it would help kind of be a bit, because we wanted the play to be more of a distraction from what was going on rather than reminding people. Mm. So it's definitely been impacted then as a piece of writing. My final question to both of you, I'll start with Logan, which has become a brand new question for me that that means something. But I think it's important. I ask you this as a human being and also as a fringe, you know, arts maker. Logan, how are you? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, the second term of, of the year at uni has just started. So it's nice to kind of, even though it's all online and I spend, you know, quite a lot of my day in front of a laptop, either on Zoom calls or looking or working on my dissertation. Um, it's nice to have uh, some structure um, that isn't just, you know, it's nice to have places to be, so to speak, even if that's on Zoom um, and not having to make my own structure. Uh, so that's been a nice change. Um, I, I just sort of take it each day at a time uh, and it's and it's not easy. I don't think anybody could say that it's, that it's necessarily easy um, and sort of certainly the social aspect or lack thereof is is difficult. But generally, I'm all right. Thank you for asking. Right. And Lucy, the writer, the theatre maker, the human being, how are you? Uh, that is, uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say that I'm kind of like doing my best to try and stay positive. Uh, I am graduating next week and I, I finished uni um, back in September. So the, trying to find a job in this kind of climate is, is not the easiest. Uh, but I'm doing my best to kind of like look on the bright side. I think one thing that has kind of been um, at least some sort of a silver lining for me in terms of trying to get a job in the arts sector is that um, I live in a town where there's like, there isn't really much theatre anywhere, but because everything's kind of online now, I, I have been kind of offered opportunities that I never would have. So I'm trying to like, kind of like make the most of that um, and just kind of keep connected with people. Because uh, sometimes, obviously, I think for everyone, it can sometimes feel really lonely right now. But yeah, thank you for asking. Well, you know, yeah, thanks for being so honest about it. I'm okay too, in case you wanted to ask. I'm in the Garden Shed, Fringe Review headquarters here in Brighton. And you know, this month, uh, you guys are part of something big. You're part of, actually, there's the Space UK, which is over 50 shows, of course. A lot of shows are going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but you're also part of the community, things like the Living Record Festival, which is happening in Brighton. I see you guys are part of that artistic community rising up like phoenixes during lockdown and, and Living Record with over 50 shows too. So the art community is alive and well and cute for being part of that initiative. But looking forward to meeting you both in the flesh at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Fringe Festival. Thanks for talking to Fringe Review. Thanks very Absolutely. much. Thank you. This has been great. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, Naomi Paul and Dion Sandbrook and Sarah Walden are going to talk about snapshot stories. But again, I'll leave all the details to their very eloquent description of what took place 
in a village somewhere in the UK and how the wish to save a forest by some villagers led to some funding and the bringing in of a spoken word artist and uh, someone with great musical talent who I've seen uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe um, came together and it was art that uh, brought passion, a passion project that led to creativity that gave a voice to a village to protest but also find out lots of other things about itself. It talks about uh, Naomi's process of research, about the creation of a piece of uh, fringe work that you can see at the Space UK. Now, now these interviews are always a bit of a challenge when I'm trying to gather three different people in, but it's fun. I think I've already been joined by Sarah Walden. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? I can. Let's hope the others all join us uh, any moment now. Um, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm uh, based in Meon Vale, which is um, a new village um, based just outside of uh, Stratford-on-Avon. So right in the middle of the countryside, somewhere nice. Yes. the countryside right on our doorstep um, we live very close to woods which we'll uh, we'll talk about um, probably at length in a moment but uh, yes we, we live in a new housing development um, which we're trying to not call an estate but rather a, because it's a very villagey feel as we're sort of and surrounded we've got, by lots of other villages and Dion's joined us too welcome um, I'm down on the very south coast right by the sea here but really, I guess the background to what we're going to talk about has also been born positively as a kind of artistic opportunity from our pandemic, our dear old COVID-19. This is called Snapshot Stories, part of the Living Room Project. And as you've said, it's it's been um, a wonderful collaboration between Naomi Paul, who's a spoken word artist. And I've seen her work up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as well. Um where she performed some cabaret too. So the community of Meon Vale um, there in Warwickshire has teamed up with her. And I know little more than this other than the word film's been uh, mentioned too. So Sarah, do you want to kick off and tell us a little bit about this? Um, okay, so we um, as a community um, had discovered um, sort of in the early part of last year um, that our local woods, which I talked about earlier, um, were going to be, well, had proposed to be built on uh, by the, the developers who own the land here. And so we all sort of got together and thought, well, what can we, what can we do about this? Um, we also discovered um, that um, there was an opportunity um, for uh, uh, local artists to be paired, or, or local community groups rather, sorry, to be paired with, with artists to do sort of community arts-led initiatives and so we thought well perhaps we can sort of marry these two things together um, so uh, Dion um, uh, put us in touch with uh, the live and local initiative um, so we were then paired with Naomi and um, we sort of got together and discussed uh, the, the, the issues with our community and sort of over time it kind of evolved into making a film because we couldn't we couldn't really do what Naomi would normally do, which would be the um, sort of spoken word performance type thing, obviously. Um, so we ended up having to find a way sort of around that. Um, so we thought that film might be a nice way of, um, of, of bridging that gap. So we ended up making the, the, the snapshot, snapshot stories film. 
So Naomi, um, we've been we've been talking about you. Uh, I'm glad you're here now. Hi. And we were talking about this unique collaboration between a, you know an artist, in your case, a a spoken word artist, um, and a community. So I'd be quite interested in also hearing a little bit then about how how do you make art with a community for people that don't know. Well, I think it was very interesting because what, what we did was um, we started off by um, recording people, but we also asked people to send in pictures, images, people wrote poetry. Um, at the beginning, the idea was that I would simply write a show, write a piece based on what I heard and learnt and then perform it from my living room. Uh, but as the others may have said, it was decided that we would try and do a film, which we could do the um, lockdown arrangements at the time and so what I ended up doing was making work for people about people so I was re receiving the information and trying to put it into a framework but because they told me so much about the importance of the woodland and how the pandemic had been during that time um, it was oddly quite easy to do it because the material was so strong um, and what might have seemed difficult was was oddly uh, uh, it was a very flowing process in a way that I would never have expected. Mm. So to bring in Dion here, what, what's been your experience of it then? What's it like being researched? <laughs> well, it, it's been it's been great fun. Really interesting. It's been a wonderful opportunity to um, get to know Naomi as a performer. Uh, but also to uh, meet lots of my neighbours. Um, what's really interesting about me on Vale is a brand new village. So it's a former army depot that was um, redeveloped with um, housing and a village hall and all the usual services. And um, I think it's been around for about six years now. So it's a very new co community. So it was, um, it was a fantastic opportunity actually to bring the community together and for us, but remotely, I don't mean physically together, but I mean to have a, something that connects us as well as just where we live and um, you know our, our lives and you know walking, meeting in the shop and walking along the, the footpaths and in the woodlands. It was a great opportunity to connect in a different way and learn more about each other, as well as discovering a little bit of history about the area. And also, um, because there were quite a few very keen wildlife fans and spotters involved in the group, just to hear a lot and see pictures of all the wonderful wildlife and things that are around us that um, I hadn't noticed before and certainly didn't appreciate quite so much. So, um, Naomi, as you research and you listen and you try to create material, I mean, a lot of artists talk about research and also the importance to when you're listening is to sort of remain objective, particularly if it's community based, if it's about the human, mm. uh, uh, you know, system. So uh, how do you and, and did you need to remain a bit aloof, at least at the start and not become one of them too quickly? Yes, I think I had to be aloof, not least because of the pandemic. So we were, you know, we were socially distanced when we were walking and talking and so on. Um, but yes, when I did the recordings, I just sat and listened and asked questions, but didn't really speak or participate. And then I took all the material home and I sat with it for quite a long time and I made notes and I listened to the recordings again. And then I extracted what I thought were the key things that people were telling me. But yes, I think I um, I did have to remain separate. I think the place where it was difficult was once I'd written the song, which is very much a campaign song for the woodland, I started to feel I'd made a contribution to the campaign, even though I'm not there. So that was where I, I guess, if you like, the boundaries slightly shifted. 
But so you okay. must be one of them by now, surely. Uh, a, a bit, bit. A bit, you know, that's part of the, in, the yes, immersion. Yes, I'm an hour's drive away and we can't go anywhere. So the, the day when they had a big campaign in the woodland, I did actually think I would love to be there. But at that point, we were in our different tiers and I couldn't go. But I might, but I would have done on, under ordinary circumstances. Hmm. And so Sarah and Dion both maybe answer. Do you now feel you've been um, successfully captured in art? Well, this is an interesting one for us because we were also um, involved very much in uh, creating the piece with Naomi. So um, to sort of speak to your last point about um, being separate from, from, from the research, um, I'm not entirely sure that that's possible. Uh, as, as Naomi said, you know, you, you sort of get to a point where you find that you are actually kind of enmeshed in it. Um, regardless of how much you sort of maybe try and keep yourself out of it and and I know that you know we've all sort of come through this whole process altered by it which I think is what should happen when you encounter um, art you know whether you're making it or uh, or just viewing it or, or whatever so um, so to be sort of I don't know di distilled through the to the, the lens of uh, Naomi's poetry um, it she was very on point with everything that she wrote. Um, and so there were moments, I think, for me, particularly when sort of reading, because I, I, I had the, the wonderful task of putting together all of the, the filmed and musical and poetic elements into the actual final film. So I ended up editing that. Um, but, you know, the moments of, of, of her pinpointing, I think, um, the, the kind of namelessness of, of the whole experience of lockdown and of this threat that we faced to our woodland. Um, it was it was so, it was moving to be able to have it all just articulated for us, I guess, in a way that, um, that we might have struggled to do had we not had um, Naomi sort of reflecting us back at ourselves, I suppose. Mm. So in terms of the final material, Naomi, how, um, how verbatim is it? Um... It's a bit verbatim in that I've got um, whole chunks of people's sentences. Um, sometimes I've added my own little links, but there are quite a lot of sections where you're just getting the lines that people said, and I've put those lines together, um, which is why it was possible for Sarah when she was um, putting the film together, I sent her the audio and watch and listen to the film. You'll hear the, the voices of the speakers uh, behind my voice. Um, so yes, a lot of it is verbatim. So, and also, um, I guess more than ever now, art is a brilliant vessel for protest. It's the only vessel <laughs> we had for, for protest in the COVID, um, yeah. you know, uh, conditions because we, we couldn't, we couldn't pursue sort of traditional methods of protest. We couldn't hold, um, uh, physical protests or rallies or anything like that you know we had to we had to think around uh how we might get our point across and so art seems yeah. uh, we discovered through this process actually that we're all fairly artistic um which was surprising um but so we were able to sort of pull all of these talents together um in in a variety of different ways um so we, we made other films uh we had other initiatives happening as well so so um so yeah, art, art really sort of helped us think through um, how we can uh, communicate, I think, with, with the developers. So, And that was effective, as it happens, because the developers have now decided not, in fact, to build on the woods. Um, so mm. we've, we've Which is great. Out. The happy ending is, is great. Yeah. Um, 
so Sarah, also then there's all this material. I mean, you must feel a great weight of responsibility as well. But what is the process then of capturing that, you know, in a limited amount of time in film that's now going to be watched? Uh, well, I'm, I am a filmmaker, although I do tend to work in experimental film. So I, for me personally, this was kind of a learning experience in how to make an actual sort of linear film that um, is much more accessible than my normal work. Um, so it, the process, I guess, was, it was not unlike, I guess, the process that, that Naomi underwent in that we had to sort of sift through the morass of material I mean that in the nicest possible way, just that there was a lot of it um, <laughs> and, and, and sort of come out with a coherent narrative. Um, so I was helped inordinately, in fact, by Naomi's script because she sort of planned out basically the narrative line, which I could then sort of start to append um, uh, visual uh, and audio um, parts to it and sort of put it together in a, in a structure that was very much actually laid out for me. So I'm tremendously grateful for <laughs> Naomi for having done and that. Could I, could um, I also... I probably would have found that difficult. Sorry, interrupting. No, I just wanted to add that um, we were also helped massively by Dave Farr, who was the person who did the filming, who is a, who isn't a professional filmmaker, but, made, but seems to be to me. And what he'd done in advance was thought about all the possible places where we could film. So you'll see when you watch the film, lots of different settings, me jumping over toadstools and playing on a roundabout and talking at different, different parts of the woods. So that when all that footage was given to Sarah, there was a choice of, of what to use. And I think without Dave's careful thinking about location, um, it would have been a very different piece. That's very true, actually, mm. because it was unfortunate that I, I couldn't actually go out and do any of the filming myself. Um, and so, and also I wasn't in a position really to be able to give any of the filmmakers because there was also uh, Matt Corbett contributed quite a bit of the film as well. Um, mm. So I, I, I sort of gave them instructions to just go out and film anything in the community that they might find interesting. <laughs> um, but Dave obviously went and, um, you know, sort of thought about how he might then film um, Naomi in, in those settings. Um, mm. So, so yes, we were we were very lucky in that we had very artistically minded mm. um, people working on the project, and and it, it was nice as well not to have to give too much direction. I think because it made it a truly community led effort, um, rather than being something that was done to anyone, as it were. If that makes yeah. sense. Now I'm hearing this. I'm, I'm hearing this word community, um, and it's making me. I've been reflecting a lot on the fact that when we went into the first lockdown in Brighton on our street of 32 houses, somebody set up a WhatsApp group and the community has just got stronger and stronger ever since. But before lockdown, you know, we'd say good morning to each other and there were neighbours on either side that knew each other, but that community didn't exist. Do you think, Dion, that, you know, the strength of a community through adversity, do we, do, do we need adversity mostly to get our community together? Or, you know, can we have community, you know, anyway? I'm throwing that one at Dion. Oh, she seems to not be here. Well, well any, anybody, because I'm just wondering, I mean, it's a great story. It's a brilliant opportunity for performance. But, but did it need a threat to the wood for you guys to kind of light up as a community? It's interesting that you'd say that because we, we, 
we're a very fast growing community, as, as Dion said. Um, so we're only sort of six years old and the majority of us have really sort of only arrived here in the last sort of two to three years and people are still moving in very, very quickly. So with that sort of fast growth, I think it's actually quite hard to develop community, but we have had sort of central kind of hubs for the community, which have been here right from the start, such as Londis, etc. Um, so there was, I think, a strong kind of community, a kind of a pioneer spirit that um, that uh, Naomi alluded to in the, in the script as well. Um, so there, that was there. And I think that the threat to the woods and the pandemic, both of those things served to strengthen what was already there. So I wouldn't necessarily say that we wouldn't have had a strong community without them. But it was certainly Well, I think having them. a cause to get, cause behind to get behind is a great way to get people together. Focuses your mind. <laughs> So I think that. So the, there's the cause, yeah, uh, and but does it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative one all the time. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think the fact that it happened during the pandemic sort of ha did have a beneficial effect because we were sort of, you know, we were trapped in our uh, locality. We couldn't travel far. You, you know, you could only see your neighbours at a distance as you passed them. Um, you know, when walking the dog or whatever, uh, people noticed their, their, their wildlife and what was around them and were much more mindful of their, their neighbours and their next door neighbours. So I think that probably helped, um, but not to say that it wouldn't have happened without mm. the pandemic and that adversity. That's, yeah, that's good thought. Final question to Naomi. <laughs> Naomi, that without lockdown, I might have bumped into you at the Edinburgh yes, Fringe. You do great yes. solo parade. Uh, you're um, a you know a solo artist, put spoken word. What what has this experience brought to you in your journey Such forward on the assumption we emerge from? Well, I think there are two things really. One is that I made a film. Um, so I, the result of lockdown is, although the film was made with other people and we were out and about making it we were observing all those conditions but in terms of a product uh, I made a film and I've never made a film before and I made it under circumstances where we had really no rehearsal I mean we had a, a day of indoor recording for the song and a and two days of outdoor recording for the rest of the script um, and on the first one I hadn't quite learnt the lines and I had them flying on the trees you know in front of me it was an extraordinary thing to have managed to produce something so fast that was a film so that's the first thing and the second thing that it's brought me is I was writing for other people about other people and a lot of the time I use semi-autobiographical material for producing shows and monologues and poetry and so on and this was liberating because here I was and it wasn't about me it was about other people and I absolutely loved it. So Naomi Paul Dion Sandbrook and Sarah Walden, thanks for talking to Fringe Review. Thank you, Thank you very Thank much. You. That is the end of episode seven and I'm sitting here and it's raining outside and actually Storm Christoph apparently is on its way though it's not expected to hit the south coast as much as the rest of the UK so sending good wishes to everyone as the word flood or flooding hit the radio news this morning always a worrying sign because we're in tough times still we're in lockdown and there's no sign of when we're going to come out Apparently people are being vaccinated 140 a minute and there's a sense of urgency in the country. 
but perhaps the urgency that isn't sensed by people uh, as much as it's sensed specifically by artists of all different kinds is the urgency of running out of money, of getting perhaps tired in most cases of needing to bring their work live or recorded online. Although, as you'll find out from the Space UK, some people have found that extremely exciting and perhaps opened up new possibilities for them. I think pretty much everybody is still hoping to be able to, and yeah, here's another word, hug, hug their friends, hug their colleagues, get back into real life performance spaces. Though the world will never be the same again, so many people, and we're going to head into a place that education is also heading into, which is blended. And the word blended means two things. It means perhaps uh, now creating work that's much more inspired and makes use of digital technology, but also blended in terms of um, making a piece of work that's going to have different forms. It's going to be live or recorded online alongside live performance. Uh, please forgive the, um, the wonderful sounds of seagulls in the background. They do love hearing the podcast live and like to be part of it. But there are financial reasons that were already explored, as I've mentioned on other po uh, podcasts, the possibility during the age of dealing with climate change that people aren't necessarily going to be flying over to uh, fringe festivals as much. Um, and if you want to reach audiences and make your work more sustainable, it could be that high quality, um, perhaps unique work can be viewed live or recorded online. And you could have audiences of thousands <coughs> alongside live work which perhaps can only take a venue of 50 people. How do you feel about that? It's really okay to not feel okay about it, but it's also okay to go there. Lots of people have. And at times of uh, cut funding, um, which has been an ongoing situation for many artists for a long time, it could be that that online audience will be your new funding source to subsidize your physical world performance. I think it was Timothy Leary that said in the future, and he was saying this decades ago, uh, physical meetings would become sacred. Um, and it could be they simply become difficult in terms of uh, people traveling to fringe festivals, which may become much more local. Um, of course, people will still fly, but I think there'll have to be better reasons to do so than just because it's possible. So looking ahead, I think you have to look ahead with anticipation and excitement and opportunity, or you look ahead with disappointment and if you do that, your energy drops and I think you'll probably find that you just bump along the bottom or even find yourself leaving the arts for something a bit safer. So I think windows of opportunity, to use that horrendous phrase, are opening alongside uh, what may be years and years of uncertainty. There's been innovation, there's been experimentation and you can see some of it in the Space UK season two. And I think they'll be back with other seasons and even if the Edinburgh Fringe happens this August, and they're back in the physical world, I don't think they're going to abandon in any way their digital platform, which has proved such a success. And we'll be covering more of it during January and February. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. <laughs>